another episode of Bookends, the podcast for writers and book lovers. And this is the first episode for 2013. Welcome back. I'm sorry for such a long break. It has been lovely. But now it's time to get back to the writing and the talking about writing. In this episode, I'm in conversation with Scottish novelist Isla Dewar, author of 16 novels, one of which is Secrets of a Family Album, one of my most favourite books of all time. So I was beyond thrilled to speak to Isla, as I'm sure you can imagine. Prior to writing and publishing her novels, Isla was a journalist, and she took a long time to finally pluck up the courage to send her first novel to an agent. But within a week, she had been signed up, and the first publisher who saw the manuscript offered her a two-book deal. Her first book was Keeping Up with Magda, and that was published in 1995. She found even greater success with her second book, Women Talking Dirty, from 1996, which was eventually turned into a film starring Helena Bonham Carter. It's almost like a plot out of one of her books, isn't it? Isla's work is observant, wise and very funny, romantic without being sentimental and powerful without being overpowering. And her novels make absolutely wonderful observations on the ups and downs and in-betweens of relationships and family life. If you've ever had the pleasure of reading one of her books, you'll know what I'm talking about. So without further ado, I hope you enjoy the conversation. Isla Dewar, welcome to this episode of Bookends. Thank you for joining me. Thanks for inviting me. You are the author of 16 books. So you've had quite a prolific career and your first novel was published when you were 40. Yes, that's right. So... What were you doing before them? Did you did you always want to be a writer, or was it something that just ca- happened? <laughs> no, um, I'd always wanted to write books, but before that, I was writing as a journalist for magazines. During that time, I also wrote some short stories and things for magazines. But I was always writing. I started writing when I was about twenty, so uh, I had quite a few years of sitting at various pieces of equipment working, you know, starting on a portable typewriter and working up now to a, an Apple Mac. But yes. So no, I, I, it didn't just suddenly happen. Though getting published did, much to my surprise. The first a- agent I approached took it, and I think the first publisher took it as well. So that was a surprise, was it? Well, yes, because I was expecting to have a long wait to find an agent and then an equally long wait to find a publisher and my agent said you know don't hold your breath because a first-time novelist it usually takes a while in fact she she got back to me within a week saying the book had been accepted so was it always um fiction rather than facts that held a bit more appeal for you oh yes i'm useless with facts Working as a journalist, you have to have your facts right. And that, I, I was always much more interested in the kind of journalistic style and having, you know, natty little phrases in it rather than facts. Though I, I do love reading journalism. I, I enjoy reading long-form journalism very much and, and, and admire it a lot. But it's just not something I can do. Well, your um, your books and, and your characters um, certainly have a diverse range of backgrounds and professions and mm-hmm. histories. And and some of your books take place in um, Second World War and 1950s. And there's a, there's a lot of variation. So do you do a lot of research for, for your books them, themselves? Well, 
for Izzy's War, there was a huge amount of research. But generally speaking, I write about situations rather than historical times. So in that respect, the the research comes along as I hit a bit that I have to look up. And I have a lot of books, but obviously now the internet is a huge help. Well, I have a lot of research books uh, about all sorts of things that I pick up at library sales, second-hand bookshops and things like that. I think, oh, this might be useful at some time. I'm also fascinated by illustrations and photographs in these books as well. Though most of my actual reading is fiction. Um, And also my husband's an illustrator, so he has to have a really big library of reference books as well. But the internet, um, Google, is so handy for, you know, a quick piece of research. If you're looking for a street in Amsterdam, for example, where somebody might be standing, you can quickly find it, things like that. And you can actually see it as well. Yes, these things on your computer tend to be such a toy that you have to be very careful. Mm. It doesn't distract you from working. I mean, your books give such a rich insight into human nature and, and relationships. So like you say, it's more about situations rather than about a particular historical time or a particular place. But what I really love about your characters is that they're quite eccentric in many ways and they get very caught up in their own thoughts or their own situation but they're also incredibly relatable as well I mean I I saw a lot of Lily from Secrets of a Family a lot of myself in in Lily which was both great but also a bit scary so I wonder do you think that you know maybe we're all a little bit eccentric in our own way we're all a little bit loopy well, maybe we all are, and I think that would be a good thing as long as it doesn't go too far. But <laughs> um, I, I think that the things that people say to me that interest me, they would say, I'm just a housewife, or I'm just something or other that they think isn't quite good enough for them, even for themselves. Mm. But when you start talking to people, and I have to say, I don't think that anybody is just anything. But when you start talking to people and you start telling you about their thoughts or dreams or fears and insecurities. And then sometimes when you're talking to them, they'll say something remarkable. It just slips away. They'll say, oh, when I won Olympic gold or when I was in the Sahara. And you think, wait, mind back, when you did what? And they've just taken something that remarkable that they've done, even if it's a small remarkable thing and dismissed it because they don't quite think enough of themselves to Mm. boast, I suppose. And some people have done things, and if I'd done them, I'd be be crowing about it all the time. So, yes, I think everybody's interesting once once they they relax and start talking. Everybody has a story. Yes, everybody has a story. They say that everybody has a book in them, and maybe that's true. I've also all always wondered if everybody has other things in them. Maybe everybody has a painting in them or everybody has an acting role in them. Just one. You know, I've often wondered why that just is about books and not about everything, you know. Yes, I agree. There's many ways to be creative. 
Yes, there are. It's not just writing or painting or composing music. Some people knit wonderfully, and of course, as we've seen on television, some people can make astonishing cakes and things that take your breath away. I've often wondered why this admiration of creativity seems to stop at books and paintings and films and acting on the stage. It goes so much further when you think about it. Hmm. Well, your characters um, certainly find all sorts of different ways to express themselves. You've got Rita Booth in Secrets of a Family (laughs) album. I know I keep bringing that one up, but it's my (laughs) favourite. So Rita was the author of several books, including The Joy of Filth, which, as we were just discussing, that's a fabulous title, fictional title, (laughs) fiction within fiction. And, And then, of course, there's Lily, who is very preoccupied with how she is perceived and ends up doing very strange things and then can't understand why people are mad with her about it. So she goes and gets a tattoo that she's convinced her mother has got, but it turned out it was a fake. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and goes and buys an Alfa Romeo, yeah, even right. though that's the car her mother wanted, and then she wonders why her brother and sister get mad about it. I, I quite liked Lily, actually. I, I like writing her. I, I enjoyed her. Somebody who's very held together, likes everything in place, and and yet longs to be a little bit more, as it were, relaxed about her life. And so she actually does go and get a tattoo. I think she's just so astonished when she discovers what her mother's early life was like and how you can grow out of that and become somebody completely different. When, when I go to the supermarket sometimes, and I watch, especially older couples, I wonder what they were like maybe 40 years ago. Did they, you know, did they have dresses or Beatles fanciers or, you know, or were they wild about the Rolling Stones and things? Because they seem so upright and set in their ways now. And I think that's how Lily saw her mother. And it comes as a huge surprise to her that her mother had a life before she came along. And um, almost, not to please her mother, but to be in sympathy with her mother, she does get a tattoo. And of course, the mother, her mother's tattoo was fake. But it kind of endears her to her family in a way as well, finally. It does, because Lily's always been the, the good one and the one they didn't have to worry about. And... But I um I really enjoyed the characters of John and Matty as well. Uh, I mean Matty was a dear old thing, yeah. um, but again you saw where Lily gets her people pleasing from perhaps. Yeah. Be- yeah. Because Matty does like does like to impress people, uh, particularly when Rita Booth's coming along for the picnic, and poor old John has to forego his sandwich, <laughs> which I thought was was very funny, but. So insightful as well, because John is actually talking a lot of sense. Yes. When when he says to Matty that, well, you know, if you think this is about a sandwich, you know, men, yes. men are supposed to be the insensitive ones. <laughs> yes, yes. I, 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 I like John. I, I liked how he would sometimes not drive directly home, but drive to the park and sit and think. What, what he's thinking is, wait a minute, this isn't what I planned. How did this happen? This, mm. this family, this tumbled down house, and actually he loves them all. He 
knows if all disappeared, he would be devastated. He needs a bit, I suppose, just a bit of me time. And also, when he's pointing out that when Martin will say, this is my dish towel, and he takes offense saying, no, it's not, it's, it's our dish towel, you know. He's always putting, making sure there's a space for him in the house. Well, I think you did a wonderful job of exploring how men, when they retire and they're suddenly at home all the time, they can feel a bit displaced. Yeah. Because the, the the woman is probably more used to, or certainly that Matty and John's generation, the woman would be more used to having total control over the house and, yeah. um, and it's her domain. And then all of a sudden the bloke's home all the time and neither of them really know how to handle it. Yes, it's an interesting thing. The women, women of that generation, of that time, always thought of the house as theirs. You know, it's their house, and they would choose what colour of paint in the living room, and they would probably have chosen most of the furniture, and they would choose what everybody eats. It's, it's actually a huge domain, if you think about it. And yet, for many years, it was kind of derided as, you know, if women stayed home, they weren't fulfilling themselves. And maybe to an extent, they, they weren't. But, yes, Matty... Matty does like being queen. <laughs> yes, she does a bit. Yes, she does. It doesn't occur to her that he should have a say. He, he, he maybe even got better taste than her. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Well, you know, she keeps a splodge of candle wax on the dresser because it reminds her of a dinner party they had 12 years ago. She can't oh, yeah. bear to clean it up. <laughs> <laughs> well, she, she, she has an attitude towards stains, whereas most people see a stain as a stain and clean it up. But she has sort of things that are non-stains, and that's a candle wax. It's, that's not a stain. That's a, that's a reminder of a, a lovely evening. <laughs> you know? mm. So hence the joy of filth ties in very nicely. <laughs> oh, yes. I mean, Rita does actually probably would agree with her on these things, but Rita just wonders if, if people should clean so much, that's all. And, of course, many people take the title of her book the wrong way. I really enjoy the domestic details in, in all of your books. The detail that you zoom in on is, is really quite delicious. I mean, everything from the characters' um, meals and the food that they eat, down to what their houses smell like. I mean, I I don't know about other um, readers of your work, but for me, um, you know, an either do a novel usually has mention of candle smoke or lavender furniture wax or <laughs> things like that. It's all very, very evocative. And I have noticed those motifs sometimes <laughs> repeated in different different novels and different characters. So is, is that a conscious thing that you do, or is, is it just that the domestic interests you? Yes, other people's domestic routines and lives do interest me. We say a lot about people, and I'm not knocking people that have different routines, but yes, I am interested in how people lay out their rooms and how they set about their lives inside. You know, I mean, people go out into the world and... They usually women are made up or they put on certain clothes and things, but inside they have a different pattern. And some people's houses are absolutely immaculate and other people's houses are very comfortable to go into. And other people, you know, have 
furniture that they haven't bought but they have acquired and sometimes some people don't even really see the interior of their house because they've, they've got so used to it and usually people have one or two beloved things either things they've found in shops or something that's been given and yes it does fascinate me some people are so fastidious about cleaning I mean and I'm not I'm no, me neither. <laughs> but, you know, I, I often want to ask people, why, why, why do you do this? Why, why, why are you like this? And I know it's because it's kind of, they feel safe within themselves when they've, you know, got everything in their house laid out the way they want it. Mm. And there's not a book or a magazine or a, or a teacup left on the floor beside the sofa or anything. And other people just don't see all that they just live with it Mm. that that kind of interests me it's very fascinating isn't it yes do you we've been talking a lot about lily and matty and rita booth and all my favorite people from (laughs) secrets of a family album but do do you have a favorite character from from all of your 16 books um yes i'm quite fond of the people in Secrets of a Family album. It's 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 also my sister's favourite book. Um, I quite like Grandad. I quite like when he posts the TV remote, um, which was something that I I wasn't I didn't even know I was going to write it, so I was was writing it. But it just he's a fabulous character. Yeah. Um, the grandpa in yeah. Secrets of a Family album. Yeah, but you really brought him to life so well. There was just so much complexity about his situation it wasn't just as simple as well you know he was a widower and couldn't really look after himself anymore so he had to move in with his son and daughter-in-law there was actually it it was companionship and and loneliness really that it was really quite heartbreaking well yes and he lives with his memories as well i'm also very fond of rita booth i'm quite proud of her yeah, she's fabulous. Um, and I liked how um, her relationship with her own son got better as the book went on because she started observing how yeah. uh, a real family st- interacted and helped each other. Yes, that's right. Yes. I'm also really quite fond of Bibi in marriage because um, her deciding to go around and see all her family because she thinks she's going to die um, I, I quite liked her and I quite liked her relationship with her husband as well The consequences of marriage, yeah. did you say? Yes, I enjoyed that very much There were elements of Matty, I thought but <laughs> Yes, I suppose there are elements of Matty You're talking again about the small detail I like how she keeps all her family history almost children's report cards postcards and things in the cookbooks and so the food and the family all are intertwined you know I I quite like that I liked how she was totally gobsmacked when her husband read her the Elizabeth Browning poem and she had thought that he'd written it for her and of course it was sometime later when she found that of course he hadn't written at all but she's angry not just at him but at herself for being duped I like these little things in people's lives. So your was it your first book 
Women Talking Dirty that was made into a film? Well, that was my second book. That was your second? Yeah, my first book was called Keeping Up With Magda, and that's about a woman, somebody who's lived in a small seaside village for all her life, virtually not left it, and runs a small restaurant. But um, Women Talking Dirty was the film, yes. And you actually wrote the script for the film as well. Yes, I did, yes. What was that whole experience like, having a, a book of yours made into a film? Well, it starts off being hugely excited about it. And then writing a script is such a different um, discipline from writing a book. There are so many voices, you know, opinions coming at you. A book you sit and write on your own and then after it's finished you'll get points and comments from your agent and your editor and then probably from the copy editor later on. The, the voices that come to you about your work come after it's finished but when you're writing a film script it all happens as you're going along. So you'll do draft after draft after draft and then even when that's finished, even when they're filming, you'll still have to rewrite certain scenes. So that goes on, and it's, it's so different. I did enjoy it. I did actually enjoy the experience of being part of a team, of, of working with other people. That, that was good fun, but, because there's so many meetings, and they're not sort of poor-faced meetings. They're, they're fun. There's a lot of laughter. I enjoyed that side of it. But then there also has to be a certain letting go because the characters, the book, even the plot is no longer yours. And other people have valid comments to make about what would work in a film. So it was different. It was You, you have to let go. It's like people compare it, writing a book, to having a child. So that... When you agree to have a film made of a book, that's the point you let go. That's the point your book takes on its own life. I know myself when I go and see a film of a book that I've loved, and I think, oh, that character doesn't look like that, because that's I've got the person in my head, and that's maybe what happened when people saw the film. They thought, oh, Cora doesn't look like that, or... There were a lot of differences in the film and a lot of things that were in the film that weren't in the book and a lot of things that are in the book that aren't in the film. Well, it sort of becomes a different text, really, doesn't it? It's it's just an adaptation. Yes, it is an adaptation. Hmm. You have to bear that in mind. I, I was just remembering something about when I was writing it, um, when I wrote a small scene. I don't, you can't even remember it was in the film. Somebody came in and they were emptying a shopping bag and saying, all right, uh, red peppers, tomatoes and things. Somebody said, you don't have to write that. Everybody can see that. And that's a huge part of the huge difference. Film has so many ways of telling a story. People can see what's happening. So you, you don't have to describe the background, you don't have to describe rooms, you don't have to describe what you're doing, because 
everybody can see that, and, mm. and even the moods are, are often uh, supplemented by music. It, it, it's so different, really. Do you think you'd do it again? At, at the time, I had really wanted to do it again. I'm not so sure now, but yes, I, I, I wouldn't mind. Coming back to this idea you said of, um, of needing to let go, do you think that that's a, an important process for writers at any stage, really, um, whether it's a book or a film or, um, you know, once it's, it's out there in the world, that that's an important thing to do? I think, yes. I've thought sometimes about books or, and I've had um, maybe another idea of, of something I could have put into a book, something I could have made a character do or a character that I could have brought forward that actually might have had some mileage or and I can't, I can't do it. The book, the book is there. It's printed. It's out in the world. And mm. yes, you do have to let go. You, you do have to let go and move on to the next one. I read somewhere that books are never finished, only published. Yes, I think that's true. They aren't mm. ever finished. I mean, I think you could actually go on and on writing the same book. You know, it would be about 14,000 pages by the time you finished. But... So... Isla, tell me about your writing routine, if if you have one. What what does a typical working day look like for you? Um, well, I would start about nine or ten. I would look over. I start off by looking over what I did the day before, and that gets me into the rhythm of it. But sometimes I I do things like stop halfway through a sentence the night before. And then I write the rest of the sentence on a, on, in my notebook. And then when I finish off the sentence first in the morning, that sometimes gets me started. But then I also would write from about 9 till about, say, 12, 1 o'clock. And I stop and have some lunch. And then I usually work through to about 5 or 6. Sometimes um, I'll work again at night. That's if it's really going well. Obviously, I have to stop and do other things like um, shop, walk the dog. But if I'm really into it, I'm I'm almost thinking about it all the time, and I'm talking about the people in it, not generally, but in the house, maybe to my husband. And it's like these people are living with us for nine months a year. I think my husband could relate to that as well. <laughs> He knows my characters as well as I do. <laughs> that tends to be how I work. It, it gets quite intense sometimes. I think it must be awful to look at a writer. Do, do you find that, because you've been writing for many years now, do you find that it's almost an automatic process for you these days, that you don't have to think too much about what, what you're doing, or, or do you find that sometimes you've really got to psych yourself up? Both. Sometimes I have to set myself up. Sometimes it becomes quite an automatic process once I get going writing, which is sometimes why I have to revise, because it's when you revise and you look at it, you think, oh, I could write this a little bit more more neatly. I could, you know, this isn't exactly clear what I'm saying here. It's a, but other than that, I tend to just, I can just keep going if I'm on a roll. But yes. Do you ever go through periods of feeling like you're in a bit of a creative slump, as it were? Oh, yes, every day. 
I have I have the what I call the the biscuitton scenario, whereas if I'm a bit stuck, and I go downstairs and make a cup of tea or coffee, then when I'm putting the the kettle on, it comes very clearly exactly what I, it, it you know the fog lifts, it starts to go well, but then when I'm on my way back up the stairs with a cup of coffee, it, it disappears again. I, you know, it's when I'm away from it. I, I, I sometimes get the best ideas. Yes, I mean, almost every day I'll reach a, a point where I take a dip. And, I mean, you were talking earlier about uh, Secrets of a Family album and the picnic they went on to the beach. Uh, that took me a long time to write. And I actually thought that I would never get these people off the speech. They would be on it forever. Because... <laughs> <laughs> You know, there were certain things I wanted to happen. I wanted John to go off on his own and then come across his son and his wife. Oh, yes, that was funny. (laughs) And also I wanted Lily to run a race with one of her nieces and not realise that actually when you're racing children, you usually let them win. Mm. (laughs) She's so competitive. She doesn't realise till too late what she's done. And I want it wasn't so much that these incidents had to happen, but what I had wanted to do was show how absurdly competitive Lily was at times and, and how John had thought, oh, well, that's my boy. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it, those, those moments reveal a great deal about the characters, definitely. Yes, yes that's right. So I had all these things that I wanted to put in, and they, I think they were on that beach for a, over a week. You know? <laughs> <laughs> I started to think, gosh, it would be cold. <laughs> but, yeah, so sometimes you, you do take a dip, and some bits, I, you know, there's usually bits in a book or scenes or incidents that I've planned well in advance, and I take a great deal of care over them. But sometimes writing them... Because I've thought about them so much and because I've devised them and planned them, they don't come quite as easily as other as other bits. Well, I think everybody's day, whatever they do, takes dips and troughs and peaks. But I, I've never actually experienced total writer's block, you know, which can go on for years. But I've never, I've never experienced that. I think that would be awful. It sounds like you've got the right idea by stopping while you're in mid-flow. I think Hemingway used to do that as well. So you're in good company there. Oh, yes. <laughs> That's a very good tip. I'm actually going to try it myself. But I, but I just um, I just write until I'm exhausted. Yeah. And, and then the next day, because I exhausted everything I had, I've, I've kind of got to fill up the tank again. So it, it makes sense, I think, to, to stop when you're on a roll. When you're starting on the sort of downward curve, not when it's really pumping along, but when you, there's a moment when you realise that that's it. You get to know yourself, I think. What do you do when, when, when you need inspiration? When I need inspiration, gosh. Apart from making a cup of coffee. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's usually, that's usually it. I'm quite fussy about coffee. I can be quite boring about the making of a, a good cup of coffee. Do you have uh, an espresso machine? Oh, yes. <laughs> yes. yes. Me too, me too. <laughs> um, 
So uh, writer's essential, really, I yeah. think. Yes, yes. But there's that. I go for a walk as well. I try to... Uh, that helps a lot. Just Actually, the thing I find to do is to try and empty your mind. Let it fill up. I think it's, it's, that, it's a little bit like, you know, when you're trying to think of something, somebody's name or anything, or who was that actor in that film, or who who sang that song, and you just can't for the life of you think of the name, then suddenly, when you're doing something completely different, you know, peeling potatoes or making a cup of coffee, or even in the middle of an important conversation with somebody, you'll suddenly remember the name and shout out, oh, I, oh, I, I think sometimes inspiration is like that. It comes off emptying your mind and relaxing, you know. The thing to do is that I haven't quite learned to trust myself, to believe that I will that the engines will fire up again. And it does sometimes, if you fret about it, it's just going to get worse. And I, I haven't quite accepted that yet, even though it's been a long time. Maybe, maybe if I set, accept that, that would be the end. I don't know. <laughs> what are your favourite books? Oh quite a lot of them. I, I I love Carol Shields. Obviously, there's not going to be any more books there. I like Anne Tyler. I like Annie Prue. There's so many that... Um, I, I like reading different sorts of books. I, I, I like crime books. I like Ian Rankin and P.D. James and Ruth Randall. I, I, I read just about anything. But I, I, and I think that I'm influenced a lot by various people. Uh, I mean, I do try in a way not to be because I don't want to copy anything or inadvertently plagiarise things which can happen even in a name. You, you know, you, you think, oh, I'll call this Harry, character Harry, and then you think, oh, and the first thing that pops in is, is Harry Potter. Of course, yes. that's a, a, a huge example, but you understand that Certain things are subliminal. You know, obviously nobody could call a character Harry Potter now, but I find it difficult to say specific writers. There's just so many of them that I admire. I, I do go back to Carol Shields a lot. I'm rereading Larry's Party at the moment. I'm rereading Unless. Oh, really? Which is an interesting coincidence. Yes. <laughs> I've not read Larry's Party. I enjoyed that very much. Is that an earlier one of hers? Yes, you should read it, you'd like it. The way I was first introduced to your work, um, interestingly, was through your short stories. So I got the anthology Girls' Night In. Oh, right. And it was your short story, The Alma Club, (laughs) that was in that one. Yeah. And uh, just for the listeners, in case they haven't heard of uh, the, The Alma Club, it was a very interesting short story about a a woman who basically becomes very close friends with her hairdresser and he basically moulds her and shapes her into a very successful woman and then it turns out that he's actually been doing the same thing with quite a few other people as well. How did you get the idea for that? It was just fascinating. I think that actually idea evolved as I was writing it. I, I, I like that short story too. It, it, it amused me, this intelligent, you know, quite successful woman goes to a hairdresser and there's only certain people that are 
are allowed to call him Alma, and she is one of them. I think that he he can select people that he can mold, and it pleases and amuses him. And of course, she she thinks she's the only one, and yes, and discovers that there's a whole the whole club of them. whole club of them. <laughs> and, and of course, now at the end, they're busy looking for another Alma because they their lives might disintegrate with that one. <laughs> do, you, um, do you still write a lot of short stories, or is it mostly novels it's these mostly days? It's mostly novels, no. But if somebody has said I should write a book of short stories, I, I do like that form as well, very much, because it's, it's more condensed, and, um, and you kind of have fun with it. Yeah. It can be a bit easier to fit into your life sometimes as well. Oh, yes, yes. And also, they're quite quickly concluded, you know, so sometimes you get a bigger buzz from them, if you see what I mean, because mm. it's a shorter space between the idea and it's being completed. So, yes, it can make you happy. Do you think it's harder to be a writer now than it was, say, 20 years ago? It's always been difficult to get into print at first. It's always been difficult to write a book and see it published. But that's always been very hard work. And but now you have the options of self-publishing. I mean, it, there was such snobbery about self-publishing. I mean, it was called vanity publishing at that time. Mm. But now it is harder. And of course, now the the biggest thing is that it's not at all easy to make a living at it. I mean, writers do not earn unless, I mean, obviously there are some who do, but generally speaking, writers don't earn a lot of money, and people because they see the huge success of Fifty Shades of Grey or something like that, they do think writers will make a huge amount of money, and it's just not true. I, I think that as for the level of difficulty of getting your first book accepted, I think that's it's still very hard. I, I, I teach uh, the Arvon courses, and the usual course would have about, say, 12 to 16 people on it. And of that, every single time I go, there's usually about four or five who think that it, it's going to be a pathway to making money. Yeah. I, I mean... A, a large volume of money, not, and and you do have to say that you do this for the love of it. You do this because it obsesses you because you want to. But you certainly don't do it to make your fortune. That very rarely happens. So, what advice would you give to people who who perhaps want to follow in your footsteps and and write novels and? You really just have to say, um, do it and believe in yourself and keep going. But it's very hard when you're on your own, sitting in a room, or or you want to get to your work and you've got children to feed and care for and make a noise. And, and also other members of the family who want your company, as well as the thoughts of your outside work. It, it's hard to, to concentrate. But, other things you can do is, of course, keep a notebook. If you have a good thought, you don't say, oh, I'll remember that, because quite often you won't write things down as you go. Try and get a little space inside every day to, that's yours. 
to write. But keeping faith in yourself is all I can really say. Do I think that applies to all walks of life, not just writing? That was Isla Dewar, author of 16 books, and all the details of Isla's work is on the Bookends website, bookendspodcast.wordpress.com, and also all the other books and authors we mentioned, if you're interested. Next time, have you ever wondered what it's like to write a cookbook? Food writer Pippa Kendrick joins me to tell the tale of how her first cookbook, The Intolerant Gourmet, came about. That's next time on Bookends, so until then, thanks for listening. Happy writing and happy reading. Bye.